politics ain't beanbag. Okay, and everybody in the country who engages in politics knows that. On the other hand, that's very, very different than saying that, you know, someone's a bully. From WNYC and New Jersey Public Radio, it's the Christie Tracker Podcast. I have very heated discussions and arguments. I feel passionately about issues, and I don't hide my emotions from people. I'm David First. Former Christie staffer Bridget Kelly was on the stand in week six of the Bridgegate trial. And judging by this coverage from ABC News and around the web, it was another rough week. Horrifying to sit through. I'm not kidding. I was seriously felt sick to my stomach watching it. Very, very sad. Disturbing. Filled with nothing but violence. I, I was physically ill. You are it. Okay, that was actually a reaction to the season premiere of uh, The Walking Dead. And yeah, no description of uh, barbed wire-covered baseball bats in uh, testimony this week. But the Bridgegate trial did boast more colorful language, stories of abusive treatment of employees in the governor's office, and, of course, a hurled water bottle. For the latest on the trial, we are joined once again by WNYC's Matt Katz and Andrea Bernstein and by the Star-Ledger's editorial page editor, Tom Moran. Welcome back. Hey. Hey there. Hey, thanks, Dave. Time and time again, Tom, Governor Christie has denied knowing anything about any lane closure scheme. I had no knowledge prior to or during these lane realignments. What does Bridget Kelly say this week? Uh, she says that she told him over and over. She told him once before and twice during the the five-day bridge shutdown. And they were very specific conversations. So in the Bridget Kelly narrative, and let's just like sort of think about the email that we all know, time for some traffic problems in Fort Lee. She sends that email at seven in the morning. What was she doing before she had to send that email? Did she have to sleep on it? I mean, there's an implication that there's somebody else she consulted with. So she says the day before, she got an email from David Wildstein, and he said, I have a crazy idea even by my standards and they have a phone conversation and in the phone conversation he explains to her that he has an idea to improve the traffic flow on the George Washington Bridge in such a way that he's going to be able to arrange a press conference between Governor Christie and Governor Cuomo right before Governor Christie's re-election and it's going to be a wonderful display of bipartisanship and relieving commute times for northern New Jersey. So that's, she said, what was the crazy idea? And she said, Wildstein said, go check with the governor to see it's okay or go ask the governor. And she says she went to the governor and the governor said, it's fine with me. Let Kevin O'Dowd, the chief of staff, know. And what's our relationship with Mark Sokolich? And she says she was embarrassed because she didn't know the relationship with Mark Sokolich. So that was the first occasion. And the second occasion was on September 11th. When she says the governor came back from a memorial service at the World Trade Center site and discussed a conversation with David Wildstein about the lane closures, and she said, he said, let the Port Authority handle it. Let Wildstein handle it. That's what uh, Christie told Kelly in their second conversation about this on September 11th according to Kelly. In the third and final conversation they had about this, this was on September 12th, which was the fourth day of, nine, 10, 11, fourth day of the lane closures. This was at Seaside Heights, 
where there had just been a fire on the boardwalk. I remember this very well because it's the only fire scene that Chris Christie ever showed up to as governor to sort of lend a hand. And the reason we thought he went there at the time was because this was a boardwalk rebuilt after Sandy, less than a year after Sandy. The boardwalk had just been reopened and a fire took down much of it. He apparently, the reason why he went, apparently he got a text from Brian Williams. Does Christie ever text you, Tom Moran? No. (laughs) Me neither. Christie has these texting relationships with famous media types, even more famous than Tom Moran. And he, uh, Brian Williams of NBC News, texted Chris Christie and said, you got to get to Seaside. There's a big fire. This is all according to Kelly's testimony. So Christie tells Kelly, get in the car. We're going to Seaside. Kelly and Christie and other aides spend two days there. And at one point, uh, there's some downtime. And Kelly says that she mentioned the lane closures to Christie uh, because it was bubbling up and there were complaints coming into constituent services, which is, uh, you know, in her wing of the governor's office. So she lets him know. And she also says, and this is huge, that she told him government retribution is being alleged, that this had something maybe to do with some sort of revenge scheme. And Christie says, let Wildstein handle it. Kelly, Tom, says, you know, is continuing to say that she thought this was a legit traffic study, right? Does anyone actually believe that? No, and I think if you know anything about traffic, you don't believe it. But she's saying basically, I didn't. I was relying on David Wildstein. But if I could circle back a sec, I've been trying to keep track of how many people have basically called the governor a liar during this trial, including Bridget Kelly and David Wildstein. But those two have an incentive to. There are others that are telling stories that by the time the governor came out and said, look, I knew nothing about this, you have Mike Duhame saying he had talked to him about it, Druniak saying he talked to him about it, Mike Druniak, the press secretary, Mike Duhame, his closest political strategist, and I think Deborah Gramiccioni too, right, a senior staffer to him, are all saying that when he stood up there on that podium and said to everybody, you know, big mea culpa on January 9th and an earlier one on December 13th, I knew nothing about this. And I've made it very clear to everybody on my senior staff that if anyone had any knowledge about this, that they needed to come forward to me and tell me about it, and they've all assured me that they don't. They're all testifying that prior to the first press conference, they told him about it. And when he's saying, my staff had nothing to do with this, eh. Far, far be it for me to d- defend the governor here, but it is a little bit difficult because he has nobody defending him because both sides are, have a reason to put some blame on Christie. That press conference that you're referring to, where, would you say he's been now proven to be a liar by all of his close advisors coming in and saying they told him about it. It's really about the definition of it. They needed to come forward to me and tell me about it. And when he was denying involvement at that press conference, he was saying he had no reason to believe that he or anyone on his senior staff were involved in a political retaliation scheme. Now, he was having conversations about the lane closures. Okay, if I'm not mistaken, on January 9th, the big two-hour presser where he spoke to the whole world and, and said, I was blindsided yesterday morning. I was done with my workout yesterday morning and got a call from my communications director at about 8.50, 8.55, informing me of this story that had just broken on the Bergen Record website. That was the first time I knew about this. He had no inkling that anybody on his staff was involved in this. So his deputy chief of staff had told him about it, and according to those five people I mentioned, all of them had told him that his deputy chief of staff 
had emails or knowledge that this was all a scam. So it's not true that he had no inkling. They, they had, she had emails about the lane closures, but not necessarily laying out the conspiracy. His denial was that I had no inkling my staff had anything to do with this. Okay, so let me um, pile on. Wrong. <laughs> okay, so if you are thinking about the four corners of the world and the trial testimony being the only universe here, it's true that Michael Duhame, his chop strategist, said, yes, I discussed with the governor specific knowledge that, that Kelly and Bill Steppi and his campaign manager had knowledge of the lane closures before that press conference. That is also what Druniak said, that he discussed Kelly and Stepien's knowledge. But Kevin O'Dowd, who's not been called to testify, former chief of staff, did testify under oath on another occasion. He testified before the legislature, and he said that he had seen an email from Christina Renna, who was below Bridget Kelly in the hierarchy, and that email did refer to retribution. And he, in addition, told Chris Christie's lawyers that when he got that email, he discussed it with Chris Christie. So there was at least one extremely senior person at Chris Christie who said in all of this, not just I discussed that there was a traffic study, but I discussed that there was retaliation and retribution. When the governor's hearing all this stuff over the over a period of months, he never gets Bridget Kelly in his office and says, okay, tell me what happened. So to me, that's very telling because he didn't want to know. He didn't want to have it on record that he knew of this. The whole effort was to freeze her out. One of the most fascinating elements of the Bridget Kelly testimony, which has now been going on three days, is her efforts, and this is backed up by the documents, her efforts to talk to Chief of Staff Kevin O'Dowd, former federal prosecutor, as this is all blowing up, right as the governor is first really denying this, and she's texting him, what can I do? Um, can I talk to the governor? And he is absolutely blowing her off. He, he is her immediate supervisor. Um, and the like hands-off nature and the, the sense she, she depicts this image of all these men in Christie's inner circle circling the wagons, and she realizes that she's being left outside the circle, and that if, you know, the proverbial, you know, if the crap hits the fan, she is starting to realize that she is going to get it. Evidence of that comes when Kevin O'Dowd, her boss, won't talk to her about it, and then when she finally has a conversation with her, he just wants to know how he can get tickets to a basketball game that she has access to because the governor gets free tickets. The thing about Bridget Kelly's testimony that has struck me, and so first of all, she wasn't in the inner circle. She was actually not in the inner circle in the way that Bill Stepien was, socialized with the governor, Mike Duhame, uh, even you know Mike Druniak had a different kind of relationship. Uh, the governor was at Mike Druniak's wedding. Bridget Kelly was not. That has come up at the trial. So she really wasn't an insider. I think it's an open question about whether she wanted to be, so I'm going to put that aside for one second. But we haven't heard her speak. Bridget Kelly is, I think, the only person, except for maybe the bridge engineers, but the only major character in this uh, narrative who is not really a political person. So Bill Moroney had been a politician, Mike Duhame, Michael Druniak, they're in the business of spin. She did not work as a, as a spinner, as somebody who was supposed to be convincing people. And listening to her narrative, I do find that it 
does seem to explain a broad array of little details that seemed to make no sense before, that suddenly when she describes them, even when she describes getting Christie's okay before she sent traffic problems, it's like, I want to hit my forehead. Of course she was getting somebody's okay. Why else would you send a, an email like that? It means I have the okay. Go ahead and do it. But, but one thing I have not heard any explanation for, I've heard this explanation for the Time for Traffic Problems email, but the famous text exchange between David Wildstein and Bridget Ann Kelly, uh, where she says, you know, uh, she writes, is it wrong that I'm smiling? She writes to Wildstein about uh, Mayor Sokolich begging for help. And then about school buses stopped in Fort Lee traffic, Kelly writes, I feel badly about the kids, I guess, Wildstein they are the children of Bono voters. Matt, how does she explain this one? This is a tough one. This is almost harder than time for some traffic problems in Fort Lee. She says, she says that Wildstein was telling her that traffic on the main approach to the bridge from the New Jersey Turnpike, which, remember, the, the lanes just closed on the local approach from Fort Lee. The, so the main approach to the bridge, traffic during this week of, of, uh, of, of congestion in Fort Lee was actually moving better. So there was actually, it, it had eased up a little bit, gridlock, on most of the lanes. So she says she was of mixed mind about this traffic study. And yes, she was bothered that these kids were stuck on school buses. She has four children of her own. But the gleeful tone, I, I, I'm sorry, how do you explain the gleeful tone of these? It sounds like someone who's in on some kind of retribution scheme. It, it certainly does. She says, is it wrong that I'm smiling? Because she's, she's says she's smiling because she's happy that all these commuters are getting to work faster, but maybe it's wrong because these kids are stuck in buses. She will, she did note that she did not reply to the, they are children of Bono voters, that just supremely evil statement from David Wildstein to conclude that text exchange. Bridget Kelly doesn't respond, which helps if she had been like, yeah, you know, screw them and they're – I don't know. She, did, she could have said something. I don't know. I don't need, maybe you can't even respond to that yeah. because it's so, like, terrible. Like, how do you even – That's her biggest problem in the evidence that he was isolated by her office and that the pretty solid evidence that this government office was used to gather endorsements and they were heavily engaged in that, all that things. The only thing she has to say about David Wildstein's sort of sickening children of Bono voters is, oh, that was David. And he has been established as kind of a weird, weird cookie here, obsessed with politics and always coming up with sort of strange and lame ideas. But the smile, if I could do it, it's not just, I think, the smile part of, is wrong that I'm smiling, was not just that the traffic was moving better, but that David Wildstein had this whole plan to give Christie credit for that right before the election. Is it wrong I'm so happy that our boy is going to score political points, but I'm sad these kids are stuck. So is it wrong that I'm smiling about? But it's a stretch. And I agree with you, Andrew. She had a very plausible explanation for the one that, going into this trial, I and almost everybody I talked to thought was the killer. Time for traffic problems before Lee, that was like pulling the trigger of a gun. Pretty good explanation for that. She needed permission. She got it. And she referred to it as traffic problems because that was their shorthand for traffic studies. They always create traffic problems. Well, I was just going to say on the their children of Buono voters, back to what we were saying about her not really being in the inner circle – it seems to me consistent with wanting to be accepted by the inner circle, that when somebody says something outrageous, who she perceived to be far more powerful than her and far more 
in the governor's good graces and far more in the good graces of the governor's circle. All of that is what she thought about David Wildstein, and all of that is demonstrably true. David Wildstein was a very powerful person. He was very close to Bill Stepien, the governor's campaign manager, and Mike Duhame, the governor's chief strategist, and Mike Druniak, the governor's press secretary. But does that excuse that behavior? So it's not implausible that she would have not felt in the position if he makes a comment like that, I don't have the power to correct him. So I'm just moving on. And she said, I was talking to him. When I did respond, I went on to another subject. That is an experience that I've certainly had in my life when people I feel are more powerful have said something that I think is objectionable. You do go through a weighing, like, do I call them on this? Do I make an issue or do I just move past it? I really think you're onto something with her. So she seems like someone who really wants to be included in the club and she's just on the outer edge of it and almost in there. And a lot of stuff she does is to ingratiate herself with them. So sure, she's in on this conspiracy sort of. She doesn't quite know if it's she's going along with it. I'll trust David on this. This is a weakness that all of these characters have. Uh, David Wildstein also wants to be closer to Christie than he yeah. is. And that's why he's doing crazy things because he's trying to prove his mettle to the governor so he can be involved in, you know, in the future presidential campaign. Bill Baroni has this sense about him that he wants to be included. And then he says he was silent sidelined by more manipulative figures like David Sampson, the chairman of the Port Authority, and David Wildstein. And this all stems from Chris Christie's own desire to be part of the White House Club, to be the 46th president of the United States, which is what sent the signal in the least that he needed these Democratic endorsements so he could run this bipartisan presidential campaign. So wanting to fit in, wanting to be part of a club, kids, that you're not a part of, it's not worth, you know. If I can just do big picture for a sec. Bridget Kelly, because she's just on the perimeter of this, is a lot more be- – her story, I think, is a lot more believable than Baroni's. Baroni's in the thick of it, and he's the guy representing them on giving what most people regard as the cover story, the traffic problem. And his testimony was much less plausible, and he as a witness was much less sympathetic. It's working to her advantage that she didn't quite get into the club, I think. And that she's not a politician. I mean, it's here we are in 2016. Let's not forget how unpopular politicians are. Bill Baroni was an elected official, and he defaults into that kind of politician ease. She worked in a government office, but seven women and five men, and I'm thinking about the composition of that jury, and she talks about her kids a lot. She talks about how she would have never as a mother been gleeful about uh, kids sitting in traffic. You know, I got to say that even when I think, like, okay, what's the worst possible interpretation you could put on this statement? She was trying to be one of the boys and joke with them. But she raised four kids. It is pretty believable that she would have felt terrible about kids sitting in traffic, that she would have had that human interaction. Remember the Munster show where it was all really weird people except the one normal girl? She's sort of like that person. Everybody else in this trial is just sort of a monster. I don't even remember that character's name. She's just just the regular blonde girl in the family of monsters. What's she doing there? I have that feeling about Bridget Kelly. One thing that is very notable that appears like it will not come up at trial is the very thing that New Jersey taxpayers paid $10 million to pin this whole scheme on. And this is the Christie's master report, the lawyers he paid – $10 $10 million, $13 million if you include the uh, the forensics, digital forensics team that he also hired. And they came to the conclusion that this whole thing happened because Bridget Kelly got dumped. 
because she was dating Bill Stepien, Christie's campaign manager. And to prove how irrelevant that is to this whole thing, neither the prosecution nor the defense have brought up her romantic relationship with Bill Stepien. And it proves what a farce that master report really was. They said she was emotional after getting dumped, and that's why she made this crazy decision to go ahead on her own and work with Wildstein to agree with Wildstein to close the lanes. Tom Moran, the editorial page editor for the Star-Ledger, WNYC's Andrea Bernstein and Matt Katz. Thanks again. Thank you. Thanks, David. Next week, we might have a verdict. Yeah. Thanks, Dave. The Christie Tracker Podcast is a production of WNYC and New Jersey Public Radio. Our theme music is by 29-Hour Music People. You can subscribe to Season 2 of the podcast on iTunes, like us on Facebook, follow Matt Katz at MattKatz00, that is Matt, K-A-T-Z, and Andrea Bernstein at Andrea WNYC. I'm David First, and uh, Governor, were you a fan of the Monsters when you were a kid? Well, when I was four, my favorite show was Scooby-Doo.